Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation, the podcast that explores the reality of a word in danger of losing its meaning altogether. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Frederick Carey on the show today. Fred is an experienced entrepreneur and CEO of Idea Pros, a company that guides qualified entrepreneurs through the complexities and pitfalls of the startup world. Fred, welcome to the show. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited for this conversation. Can't wait to hear what you have to share with us about innovation. Well, I am happy to be here and I'm excited as well. So hopefully we can create some value over these next 20, 30 minutes. That's what innovators do, right? We create value. (laughs) Yep. So let's dive right in. What in your mind is innovation? To me, I like to look at innovation on a personal level. And to me, innovation is always trying to make yourself obsolete Mm. because if you do it, somebody else is going to do it. So for me, the whole definition of innovation is finding newer, better, more thorough, cost-effective, or more powerful ways of doing things that you're already doing. Find what you know and do it better. Mm. I love that definition because so often the first thought people have about innovation is doing something new or different or outside of their boundaries or outside of what they already know. And I love that your definition kind of flips that and says, you know what, take what you do and just do it better. Exactly. What are the benefits of taking that approach, doing what you do better versus trying to go learn a new thing? If you use that approach, you're starting on a pretty solid foundation. You're starting with something that you know. Mm -hmm. And if you've taken the time to really know something and try to make that your living, your business, your purpose, your passion, then it better be something worthwhile. And if it's something worthwhile, then you want to keep it. Mm. And if you want to keep it, you have to keep looking at it every day. And how can I make this better? How can I make this different? How can I get more customers? How can I make more customers happy? What do they need right now that I'm not giving them? Those eternal questions that should be happening Every night when you go to bed and first thing when you wake up in the morning, when you personalize innovation and bring it forward from a position of strength and knowledge, then you're going to have a much better chance of actually achieving it. Mm. Personalizing innovation. I love that phrase. Tell me more about what that looks like in action. So what's the difference between someone who's personalized innovation and someone who hasn't? Right. As you said a minute ago, most of us look like, what can I do different in the world? It's going to be the kind of next chat GPT or the next computer that first came out or the next Mm -hmm. electric car thing when those things first came out, which was 1890, by the way. Oh, wow. So innovation takes time on the electric cars. (laughs) Wow. But we tend to do that. We tend to look far afield and the chances of us discovering what that thing is and then becoming an expert in it and then creating something that people want and doing that in our lifetime you have a pretty small chance of doing that. Mm. Where instead, if you look internally and you're creating a value in what you're doing already, and you just look at how do I create more value in what I'm doing? That's where innovation really happens. That's where it really takes place. And you look at some of the biggest innovators in history, they start from a premise normally. They start from a premise of expanding where they are, what they're doing, where they're growing. I mean, there's some exceptions. Elon Musk. He's kind of a lunatic in that regard. He's just like, you know, here, there, everywhere. But for most of us, you know, we build out something that comes from a nucleus that is very, very strong and powerful to begin with. 
Mm, right, right. It's such a great example. And I love that uh, reference of the 1890 date on the electric cars because a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. And, and I didn't know that. In particular, that era, there were a lot of inventions and new things that happened in, call it the 1840s to the 1920s. There was just an explosion of innovation. The word wasn't around at the time. But if you look at so many of the different things that are industries now, they were invented in that window of time. Yep. And when you talk about innovators, I always think about the Wright brothers and them starting from their mechanical know-how as bicycle shop owners. Yeah. And they didn't go into a fully different domain. Like you said, they just looked at, what do I know? What can I do with this? How can I build on my existing expertise to do something better? And so I think that's such a great point and probably the predominant way things happen. Yep. It just seems like when the story gets told about innovation, people look back and talk about it as if it were this lightning strike out of nowhere, completely unique thing. And so the story kind of makes people think that, oh, I need to go out and find this thing. But to your point, Elon Musk aside, <laughs> people tend to sort of take a lily pad approach of growing step by step, bit by bit. And then when you look back, You've made a significant leap from where you were, but it wasn't all at once. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's a solid argument that innovation happens in baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the personalization aspect of it makes those baby steps a bit more clearer. Yep. For lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the folks that are successful do that almost intuitively, but... I really hadn't heard anyone name it and talk about it the way you just did, yeah. which I think is important balance to the go out there and just find some random thing that's, that looks like it's going to be the next big thing. Yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> right. right. That's the, it's the voice of wisdom and experience there. I mean, I've, I've been around in innovation for a bit, and your point rings very true. I know there are programs and accelerators and all sorts of things that have sprung up to teach innovation. And that's important and it has its place. And I think it just needs to be balanced with sort of the kind of perspective you provided, which can only come from having gone from point A to point B and having looked back at what worked and what didn't. Yeah. I mean, the difficult part about, quote unquote, teaching innovation is how can you give somebody the brick and mortar needed to create something that doesn't exist? Mm. All you can do is help people think better, think more clearly, look at expanding where they are. That's as much as you can do about teaching innovation. Another extent, it's in you or it's not. You can't teach innovation by, okay, the next thing we're going to create is in this field over here. Right. Nobody knows that or they wouldn't be teaching you. They'd be out doing it. <laughs> Uh, well said. Well said. I know you're a founder and you've built a business and all those things. How has your perspective on innovation changed from day one of creating your company to where you are today? Yeah. Well, before Idea Pros, I started 10 different companies. Wow. And the ones that were the most successful are the ones that we took some big leaps and bounds as far as where technology was or where common practices were in the industry that I was in and made it different, made it better. And so in the very beginning, my first couple of companies, I 
but didn't innovate at all. I was pretty much a copycat. Mm -hmm. I did well and had good exits from them, but I didn't really change the game at all. And then as I got more mature and started realizing the underlying value that you create is based upon what you're giving your customers, your clients, the people who are buying your product, service, or solution. And that's when I really started focusing on changing the game. I had a company called Boxlot that started out in the auction world right after eBay came out and quickly realized there's no way I was ever going to catch up to them. Mm. And we innovated and we looked at the area like what everybody wanted to do auctions then all of a sudden, Amazon, Yahoo, right. everybody wanted to copy eBay. Right. So I looked at what is really missing here. So I'm in a place that I know, and now I can start looking for problems in there, things that aren't being done well. And, and the whole problem with all of that was in the technology and mm. bidding. You'd have to place a bid, then you'd have to go back and see if somebody outbid you. You couldn't place a bid and then do incremental bidding and then maximum bidding. Couldn't bid and buy. You couldn't do reverse bidding. None of those things existed. Oh. We created all of those things. And 18 months later, we're sold for $125 million. Wow. And that's what innovation is all about, starting from your home turf and hitting home runs. So it sounds like when you entered the space, the folks you thought were going to be your competitors ultimately became your, your customers. Customers. <laughs> that's, really, that's really great. Yeah. Yeah, that is what innovation is all about. Like you said, you come into the space and learn about it from one perspective and see where the problems are. And then you have the expertise and the understanding of the industry and the pain points and the technology to be able to pivot to follow the value. Yep. Yeah. And I had a few companies doing things like that. We don't have time in the show to go through them all, but the key to the successful exits happened not from what I'd had at the beginning, but from what we created at the end. Mm. And that's why at the beginning I talked about always focusing on trying to make yourself obsolete. Just what is it that would kill me as a company? And if I can create it, I'm going to continue existing. If somebody else creates it, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect way of thinking about things because not only does it keep you thinking about what's next, but it also keeps you focused on value creation for your customer, because that's what puts you out of business when someone solves that problem better than, than you do, or faster than you do, or more cheaply than you do. Yeah. And so if you do ask yourself that obsolescence question, it has all the things packed in there that otherwise 10 point checklist. Yeah. It's all in there. It's a very elegant way of thinking about it. Yeah. This is kind of a two point checklist. Yeah. Is somebody kicked my ass yet? Yeah. <laughs> and how do I stop it is the second point. And the reality is if you're in a marketplace and all of a sudden you have this great business, you're doing well, you're getting a lot of customers, guess what? People are looking at you. When they launch a new company, they worry about competition right away. You know, I have 400 companies under me at Idea Pros. We help entrepreneurs start businesses. So I own 30% of 400 companies. It's insane. That is crazy. It is. Yeah, that's yes. <laughs> Crazy, but not in a good way. But the reality is almost all of them come to me when they first start out and they have an idea on a paper napkin. And it's like, you know, I don't have any competitors. And how do I keep competition away? And I said, well, you know, the answer to both of those is the same answer. Is if you don't have any competitors, that means you don't have a market. 
and you're going to keep them away because you don't have a market. And the reality is there's competition. If you find a demand, there's competition. You know, even with the first car, somebody could argue, no, I had no competitors. Yeah, you had the horse. Mm-hmm. The horse was your competitor because the problem that was being solved was transportation. Right. So whatever you're doing, there's always a competitor out there. And if you start doing it from the beginning, they don't give a shit about you. But if you start excelling and getting market share and growing, they're all going to come for your lunch. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that yourself. And so innovation is not a luxury. It's a necessity of staying in business. Mm, That is very well said. And that line about, I have no competitors. I've been guilty of saying that in my early days of work. And I've also heard that in not just from entrepreneurs and founders and things, but also from product managers and marketing directors and Fortune 500 companies. I spent some time in Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola and Kinsey and in those conversations within those companies and with clients, you hear that same message and it's a problem for innovators as founders. It's a problem for innovators as market leaders. It's a problem for innovators as department heads, which is fascinating. Yeah. You know, it scares me that you heard that at Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola because (laughs) those are like the two best marketing organizations in the world. Procter & Gamble may be even better because nobody knows what any of their products are, but we use them every day. And yeah, exactly. We buy them even though they're inferior and cost more than the competition. We buy them anyway because they're so good at marketing. But the reality is, God, to hear that in organizations, like somebody should be beaten to death. But here's the thing. What it is, is everyone in the organization is a great marketer. Yeah. And so it creates this one-upsmanship, not in a negative sort of way. It's a very competitive culture and environment. Yeah, yeah. And so when things come through, like if I can say, oh, this is a brand new innovation. It's new to the market, new to the industry. No one's doing this. That's the code for I don't have any competition. No one's doing this yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, no one would say I don't have any competition because they get eaten alive. Yeah. And the VP would have the same reaction you just did. But the coded version of that is, Oh, we'll be the first to market. No one's doing this yet. Yeah. And first to market and no one's doing this are two different things, as you highlighted with the horse car analogy. Yeah. First to market doesn't mean this problem isn't being solved in some way. Yeah. Which is the fallacy. When you give someone at, and not just to pick on P&G and Coke because I was there, but any CPG company, they're organized around products. And when you put someone in charge of product A, that's the way they're going to view the world. Yeah. And it creates that same sort of blind spot you're talking about, whether you got a company or a product that you're responsible for. It's easy to convince yourself that there's no competition. Yeah. If you're an innovator out there and you're starting your own business, you're looking at where to go with it. Being first to market's not always a good thing. And especially when you have very limited resources, very limited budget, it's kind of better to be second, third, fourth, fifth to market because somebody else has proven out the market demand. They've gathered the customer base. You're able to observe from a distance where the weak spots are. Even now with the internet, it's just amazing because you can just look for one-star reviews. I want to be in this business. What is everybody bitching about? And I'm going to create something that everybody's bitching about. Right. And you can bring a a product that's going to turn those one-star reviews to five-star reviews. And you do it as a much smaller organization than ones that have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on research and marketing, advertising, 
customer acquisition, you don't have that luxury. So you don't always have to be first to end up being very successful. Mm, that's so true, especially in the last, I would say, three to five years, the barriers to entry in almost every category have just absolutely plummeted. The last sort of hurdle, I think, is utilities. Yeah. But other than utilities, I think if you want to get into a market, a major industry in some way, it's much easier now than it was even five years ago, let alone 15 or 25 or 50 years ago. Yeah, that's one of the things I successfully predicted. I'll get into some of the things I really to bet on, as they say. <laughs> but this one that I got right, I did my final paper in my MBA program. I got an international MBA in the University of Liverpool a long time ago. Hmm. And the thesis was born global. And the internet was just starting out. And my argument was that someday soon, any company of any size anywhere in the world could start selling all over the world because of the internet. And you're right. Those barriers have come down. You have a big, huge universe out there that you can address. You just have to find the right way to address them, the right product set to address them with, and continue to innovate so you can win and stay ahead of the game. Yeah, that's a perfect example because if you think about, and I'm sure you've taught people this, talked to founders about this, all that, but total addressable market is a big thing in this world. Yeah. And the total addressable market one day was the people you could reach in a four or six hour radius or whatever. And the next day it was the seven, eight billion people on the planet. And I don't think everybody's fully wrapped their heads around that because it makes the math different. And when the math changes, then what's needed from a penetration standpoint changes. Yeah. And I think that's what you're alluding to when you're saying you don't have to be first to market to make money because what's the market? Okay. Someone came out and they have a 60% share in the United States. Yeah. Okay. That's a great idea. It worked here. What might it look like in Canada? What might it look like in Australia? What might it look like in the United Kingdom? And you know, those places have great opportunities because a lot of things that get launched there are, are me too's. Yep. And they go in, they dominate all of Europe, which has around the same population, maybe even a little bit more than we do. They dominate it because they're copying what we're doing. And the same thing happens in Asia, Australia. A lot of different places mm -hmm. you really have an opportunity to do well and even from the investment standpoint you know when you're going out and you're starting a company you're going to speak to investors here's what we like to do and by the way this is why the number one reason that new companies fail is the founders created something there's no demand for mm. even higher than not having capital think about that wow but what we want to do as founders, when we go sit and talk to angel groups or accredited investors or friends and family or venture capital firms, we want to go in there and talk about revolution, how we're changing the world, how our product is so unique that nobody's seen anything like this before. And the first thing the investor thinks is, I'm going to shit my pants. How many times has this person changed the world before? Right. I don't even know what his name is. He's not in Wikipedia. I don't think he's changed the world before. Now he wants $500,000 to change the world. I don't think that's going to happen. Right. And a lot better argument for somebody who's going to cut you a check because they're not buying your dream. They're buying a financial instrument. Yes. This is what I'm buying. Why am I buying this? How much am I going to get? When am I going to exit? Right. How much am I going to make when I exit? And why are you guys the ones that are going to pull this off? And so... What an investor wants to hear is, and by the way, 
Innovation can be born from this. An investor wants to hear, look, I'm going into a market that's robust, that's growing. These three competitors, they're awesome. They became billion-dollar companies in three years. They really proved up the market. They really made huge demand, but they really suck at this one thing. Mm. We're not smarter than them. We made this one thing that they don't have. And this is why we think we can go in there and take significant market share because look at this, 5,478 one-star reviews from massive customers. And that's a one-star review on is what we created to make a five-star review. And it's not that we're smarter than anybody else. We found a gap in the market. We've created it. And we know the demand is there. We just need the money to go get it. For an investor, they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Don't change the world. Just make it better. Right. Wow. That is so counterintuitive mm -hmm. to what you hear and see. You look at Shark Tank and all these other things. Yeah. What the narrative is about how you get money, how you wow investors and the like. I'm so glad you shared that because it's not something that people say out loud very often. And I think it needs to be said out loud more often because it's not about convincing me you're going to change the world. It's about convincing me you're going to provide me a return. Yes. There's probably a bit of ego built into why that doesn't get talked about more often, I would imagine, and maybe a bit of risk. If it doesn't sound revolutionary, it doesn't sound like it's going to make a lot of money. I was driving in North Georgia the other day, and there's just huge warehouses with names on the sides of them that you've never, ever heard of. Yeah. But they're massive nine-figure companies doing very boring things, very <laughs> oh, yeah. boring things. And their investors are cashing very boring, very large checks. Yeah. So I think there's some aspect of ego and then some aspect of maybe excitement or glamour. Do you know what I mean, Fred? Am I making sense? Yeah, no, you have this desire to go in there and wow the investors. Like, I can't believe that you've created this. This is so revolutionary. But investor doesn't want you to be a pirate. Drop the R <laughs> in revolutionary and make it evolutionary. Good enough. They want a comfort zone. Think about it. It's risk capital. Mm -hmm. The more you can make risk capital less risky and more certain, the more chance you're going to have of getting a check. I teach this once a month. In fact, if I could give a free plug, I'm not looking sure. for anything, but on ideapros.com, if you go there and get a free membership, once a month we do different webinars, then those are completely free as well. And I do one that's called Pitchcraft. It's two hours and really digs into why all these different pitches, the templates you get from Y Combinator and the rest of them, just are not really good in the greater scheme of things, when you're talking to the type of investors you're likely to talk to, you know, Y Combinator model may be good for a venture capital firm. We want to see this is the problem, this is the solution, this is the management team, these are your projections. But for the average investor, it has to be different than that. And so hmm. I teach that how to go get money from anybody under any circumstance. So hmm. ideapros.com, free member, and you'll have access to those types of courses. Oh, man, that sounds like gold. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So this podcast is about innovation. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason it exists is so many different people have so many different definitions of innovation and ways of thinking about it and what it means to them when they hear the word. What role do you think words like innovation, transformation, disruption, have those words sort of changed the way people think about pitching and people think about investing? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. 
innovation, disruption, words like that, use them carefully. Mm -hmm. It's almost better to be accidentally there. <laughs> we cooked up this scheme in my parents' cellar for the last five years, and we're going to come out and change the world. You can express disrupting a marketplace by simple means. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the world. You could be a dentist. You have 30 dentists within two miles of you, but you've found a way to make the experience more pleasant. And you focus on preventative dentistry. And you have a program where people pay every month to come in to not get cavities. And you're going to guarantee they never get one. And it's painless and thorough. And you become part of this club. That's innovation. Mm -hmm. You don't have to change the world. That's like, because people hate pain. They hate dentists. <laughs> Yep. And this changes it all. Just something simple like that. And if you guys are dentists out there and you're listening to this, I want to cut. <laughs> but it, you can innovate anything. You don't have to disrupt the entire world. Just disrupt the market that you're in by creating a better solution. Mm. So it's better to show than to talk about, than to tell. Exactly. Disrupt. Don't tell me you're going to disrupt. That's right. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And, and by the way, they've seen those same words. 50,000 times right. this week, you know? <laughs> so the other thing that I hear and see a lot is I don't do a whole lot with VC-seeking entrepreneurs. For me, I work more with um, small businesses and sort of bootstrappers. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I hear a lot is being the X of Y, like the Uber of or the Amazon of. Huh. How does that land to someone? That's a potential embarrassing moment. You really have to be careful. If you want to compare, do it more from a distance. Mm -hmm. For example, one of my clients is a company called Sleepover. Mm -hmm. And they are short to stay for, for the digital nomad. And they're out raising capital right now. And their pitch is not that we're the Airbnb for the digital nomad. They reference Airbnb, but they do it in a different way, thanks to my training. Mm. Basically, look, Airbnb paved the road. They showed when everybody in the venture community said, get the hell out of my office. Nobody's going to allow strangers to stay in their home. They couldn't <laughs> get any money. They've gone out. They, they're brilliant. They did all the hard work. They're all over the world. They did an amazing job. But we looked at what they're doing. What they're doing doesn't serve that digital nomad that wants to work from anywhere and wants to know what he or she are getting. Mm. They want to have internet, like good quality internet, a working desk. They want to have a furnished place. They want to be in a central location where they can walk downstairs and get on a bike and go to a gym or go to restaurants. And we've created this unique experience all over the United States by having this familiarity that a digital nomad needs at a price point they can afford. Mm. And so now I've talked all about Airbnb, but I didn't say I'm going to be the Airbnb of digital nomads. I've created a foundation for the investor to understand this is a proven model. Mm. We're just taking it, we're making it better, or we're making it more succinct for a subset of the travelers that really need this consistency that you can't get from an Airbnb. Wow. So you're basically leaning into the comparison, but at a model level. Yeah. Not at a, here's what we're going to do this in this space. Right. Yeah. It's, we've looked at what they've done. Here are the elements that will make our job easier. 
in terms of following this playbook. Yeah. And here's the thing that they missed. And that's what we're going to focus on. Yeah. Hey, look, we're just average people, but we're really observant. And this is what we saw. And this is what we understand the need to be. And we know we can pull this off. Mm. Give me your money. That is, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that is a much more compelling approach. I understand why people say it and I hear it a lot. And so I, I always, whenever I hear it, I always think, I understand why you're saying that, but something about phrasing it that way just lands hollow. Yes. Both things. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And from an innovation perspective, it also, I feel like, can be limiting in terms of problem solving. Because once you put that in your head, you're cutting branches off the tree, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. But the way you laid it out allows you to take the best of what worked for them and what makes your job of delivering your product for your people easier. And you get that intuitive benefit of okay, now I have a mental model to wrap my head around as a listener. Right. But it's not a copycat or a cut and paste sort of thing. It's evolution, not revolution. Yep. That's exactly what it is. It's been an educational, inspiring, energizing conversation. Before I let you go, I want to make sure I ask you, and you've been providing advice all along the way, but are there specific areas of advice that you would offer innovators? Yeah. Number one, don't think you can do everything. Don't think that you can completely change the world. Try to make the world that you're in a little bit better. Mm. And innovation, by the way, happens a little bit better at a time. Back to that first car. The horse could outrace the, the damn car when it first came out. That's true. You know, it was a little better, but it's a work in progress. So you're not going to shock the world overnight. And don't try to do that. Just find where you are and make it better, make it different. Mm. Innovation is all about doing things differently. You don't even necessarily have to be better as far as underlying technology or things of that nature. You have to be better in the customer experience. The heart of innovation is in the customer experience. Mm. Your company, Procter & Gamble, it's all about the customer experience. They speak to that customer. Yes. And even when they have a product that is maybe inferior with the ingredients of the product and, and may cost more, they have found the heart of the customer. And innovation springs from the heart of the customer. Oh, that's well said. Innovation springs from the heart of the customer. That's just very well said. Fred, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today, talking about innovation, the focus of innovation around making yourself obsolete. And thank you so much for your time. Hope it's been time well spent for you. It has been. And that's part of my mission. And by the way, if you don't mind a second plug, yes. on Instagram, if people want to follow me at official Fred Carey, C-A-R-Y. As I said earlier, I have about a half a million people following me. I don't know why, but they are. <laughs> I talk about kind of doing the right thing and give tips for entrepreneurs. And one minute a day, I post once a day and spend one minute out of your 24 hours to get a little bit of inspiration or direction, or even call me out if you think I'm full of on something I say. Whatever it is, it's fine. And again, ideapros.com, go there, be a member, it's free, and we'll give you a lot of knowledge. What we're aiming to do is help entrepreneurs go as far as they can. You know, we're trying to make better people so we can get a little bit better world. That's great stuff, great stuff. Thank you again for your time, and we'll make sure those resources are captured in the show notes so people can find those as well. Perfect. Thanks. Bye-bye.
All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to get more insights from innovators across the world. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional content and conversation. I hope to see you there. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.